For more information on Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, please visit our website at www.ancientdragon.org. Our teachings are offered to the community through the generosity of our supporters. To make a donation online, please visit our website. The unsurpassed, profound, and wondrous Dharma is rarely met with even in a hundred thousand million kalpas. Now I can see and hear it, accept and maintain it. May I unfold the meaning of the Tathagata's truth. Good morning, everyone. My name is uh, Gyoshin Laurel Ross. I'm uh, one of the priests here at at Ancient Dragon. And uh, I'll be sharing the speaker's seat uh, this morning with Dylan Toropov. Um, I'll introduce in a few minutes. Um, So it's the holiday season, and I just want to begin with brief comments on one of my favorite holidays. The the winter solstice for the Northern Hemisphere uh, will occur tomorrow morning at 4.02, so happy winter solstice. And this, of course, marks the beginning of winter, so we'll have our shortest day and our longest night of the year. And I like to think of it as a time of turning Uh, The sun has appeared lower and lower in in our sky since last June, and and this week it's at its lowest. And we'll see our longest shadow, so that's a good photo op. Uh, But this reverses uh, at the winter solstice, and the sun will slowly be higher, and the hours of daylight uh, will slowly become longer. And, And many cultures over the millennia have seen this as a rebirth, the rebirth of the sun. So tomorrow, on December 21st, the length of daylight will be 9 hours, 7 minutes, and 45 seconds, which is one second shorter than today. (laughs) And on January 20th, which is a day many of us are looking forward to for other reasons, uh, the daylight will be a little more than half an hour longer. And by February 2nd, which is the halfway point, Uh, to the spring equinox, uh, we'll have more than an hour more daylight, so a little more than 10 hours. So between now and then, we'll practice patience, and we'll have faith that the light will return. And in the meantime, I think we should enjoy the darkness and, and maybe try to learn from our fellow sentient beings, the trees, that the trees concentrate their effort in, in the darkness underground in winter, and they, they live more slowly and deeply until spring. Uh, we have a difficult topic to discuss today, and I thought I would begin by reading the echo that Tigan wrote for the winter solstice 10 years ago in 2010. It's, it's, it's an inspiration. I'm not going to chant it. I'm just going to read it. On this winter solstice, darkest day of the year, we now resolve not to turn away from the deep darkness of our troubled world and of our lives. We welcome the light increasing now from this day on. 
May we all spread this glowing light in our lives. May the Bodhisattva way pervade all human hearts. And may the world begin healing in this awakening light. And so end wars, cruelty, corruption, and the corrosive greed damaging our planet and its beings. May kindness be shared and grow among all beings. And may our Sangha be a welcoming beacon to support all who enter to face their lives in our world. And so all find our inner calm and dignity and extend to all the comforting glow of the awakening way. Thank you for that, Tigan. Um, so today's talk uh, will, will not be a presentation. Dylan and I uh, wish to engage you in a discussion that we hope will be an ongoing conversation. This past year, I, I participated in an online class through Branching Streams, which links uh, sanghas affiliated with the San Francisco Zen Center like, like ours. Uh, and the class was called Unpacking the Whiteness of Leadership from a Buddhist Perspective. And uh, nearly 100 people from all over the country uh, participated. It was a 12-week class, and we did a lot of reading and talking to each other about racism. And we were challenged uh, to examine and share our personal experiences, um, mostly in small groups. And for me, it was a very rich experience. If they repeat it, uh, I'd, I'd recommend it to you. But the final class was about doing. They presented us uh, with the assignment to make a commitment for action in our own sanghas. I'll read you the assignment. Please think of an issue of racial equity that you would like to address in your Dharma center. Choose something meaningful and not too big or too small. So we were asked to envision a good outcome and basically figure out how to get there. But since I was the only one in the class from uh, Ancient Dragon, I, I brought this question to a few of our Sangha leaders, and they made the excellent suggestion that I should talk to Dylan, who's been leading a discussion group on anti-racism uh, on Friday mornings for, for quite a few months now. A uh, number of people that regularly attend that are, are here today. So that's wonderful. Um, and Dylan agreed to co-lead this discussion today. So we're hoping we can think together today about the values that we share and how practicing together can make a difference. I don't know if we'll identify an issue of racial equity that we as a Sangha are interested in, but that was the assignment. So maybe keep it in mind. I'm going to turn this over to Dylan now to, to talk a little bit about the Friday morning group he leads and to introduce the format uh, of today's discussion. Thank you, Gershon. I hope everyone can hear me okay. Uh, so, yeah, I'll start with a couple of acknowledgments and then I'll... Uh, I'll go into why uh, why we started the Friday morning group. I'll introduce the format of the discussion, uh, some ground rules, and yeah, that's that's how we'll begin. So I want to start off with um, acknowledging uh, today that I have 
honor and uplift that this territory is home to the original stewards and guardians of Chicagoland, the Miami, Osseti, Sakoin, Kickapoo, Peoria, Ojibwe, Odawa, and Potawatomi nations. The Alliance of the Ojibwe, Odawa, and Potawatomi nations is known as the Council of Three Fires, first formed in the year 796 of the Common Era at Mishimikanak, also known as Mackinac Island in Michigan. These peoples did and do still exist, and I thank them for their continuing leadership. Without their committed stewardship, we would not be enjoying this place today. Also today, I recognize and acknowledge the enslaved Africans who have lived, been subjugated to free labor, and toiled the grounds where many temples have been built and resurrected. And today I remember and uplift the hundreds of thousands of people whom we have lost to coronavirus in 2020. I remember their families and the impact on the lives of their family members, the economic damage to individuals and institutions, the amount of deaths that could have and can be prevented. The future generations are depending on us to study, to study the dimensions of this tragedy and act accordingly. So um, thank you. Uh, the the Friday morning group was begun uh, as a response to the murder of George Floyd. Um, after after Mr. Floyd was murdered, uh, I went to the board of directors, or um, I, I attended a meeting. Uh, I'm, on, I'm on the board, and I just said that. I think we need to have a um, uh, a sitting group that is providing a place for uh, the pain and uh, grieving the pain and the pain of of uh, of the of of racism uh, in Chicago and in America. And I just knew that if we, I had a very deep feeling that if we didn't do that, that we weren't doing our job as a spiritual community, uh, that that needed to happen. Uh, so thankfully the board uh, gave me the okay. And, um, and, uh, and we started, we started the group. Um, and we've been going as as uh, Gyoshin said for a couple months now. Uh, and I was finishing uh, Angela Davis's book, Freedom is a Constant Struggle, and I'll quote her uh, as because it was very reassuring to me for the the purpose of the group. She says in that book, "I want to take issue with what he and she means Obama said when he exclaimed that if we want to be successful in our struggle against racism, we cannot say that we need more conversations about race." Rather, we should say that we need action. Certainly, we need a great deal more than talk, but it is also the case that we need to learn how to talk about race and racism. If we do not know how to meaningfully talk about racism, our actions will move in misleading directions. The call for public conversations on race and racism is also a call to develop a vocabulary that permits to have insightful conversations. If we attempt to use historically obsolete vocabularies, our consciousness of racism will remain shallow and we can be easily urged to assume that, for example, changes in the law spontaneously produce effective changes in the social world. 
so that was uh i read that and and uh and felt that it was definitely a good idea for for that uh, friday group to keep going uh rather than just be a, a kind of a one off or a couple couple times we sat after george floyd's murder that it should be a continuing project so really i think about it as a pro- as a group that's just in essence, developing and studying the consciousness that respects all beings and how we do that in America, particularly. So the format of the discussion is um, it's a Sangha conversation on anti-racism and the Bodhisattva precepts. Uh, Yoshin and I will go through hopefully four of the of the Bodhisattva precepts um, and we'll discuss its uh, its connection to anti-racism. And um, and then we'll open up the discussion to you um, after each precept. So uh, we want this to be something we do together. Uh, a couple of ground rules. If, you, uh, if you're someone who speaks often, please, um, please maybe speak once today and really make uh, we're Dylan, we lost you. Losing you, Dylan. Hmm. Just like that he was recommending silence. He disappeared. <laughs> did my did my Wi-Fi drop out? Yes, yes, it did. Oh, okay. What was the last thing y'all heard? Uh, that if you have if you have already spoken. Um, maybe wait to be sure other quieter people have an opportunity. doesn't mean you can't speak more than once, but okay. do, I think that's what you were starting to say. And then you yes. stop. Yes. And then yes. the, the yes. universe made you quiet. <laughs> there you go. Um, and then also, if you don't speak often, that we encourage you to speak today, that this is a place where your voice is important and it's important for us to listen to you. Also, uh, Please don't use any racist slurs and uh, speak respectfully. I, I've noticed that white people tend to use racial slurs now in America in sort of a referential context. Like, uh, I heard this person say this, and I was so offended. Uh, so just out of respect for our friends and our neighbors that are surviving racism for this space and for our future ancestors, please just stop and drop those weapons. Uh, they really, they just don't belong to you. So please speak respectfully. Uh, so Gyoshin and I are going to keep time with each other. Uh, so we'll speak. Each precept will be about 15 minutes. And uh, I'll pass it over to Gyoshin. Thank you, Dylan. Um, so when we follow the precepts, um, our life basically becomes our practice. So um, this is this is why we decided to have this conversation in the context of discussing discussing the precepts. I, I, f- I feel as if through enacting the precepts, we 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 learn how to to lead good lives. So we're going to start the discussion today um, with the precept not to speak of others' faults, but instead to speak out of loving kindness. 
And uh, we're going to start there because we want to set the tone for the rest of the discussion and help us focus on what we can do and, and not at pointing fingers at the failures of others. I mean, we all know the, the level of discourse in our world is it's sunk below anything we could have even imagined 10 years ago. And, um, and that creates a lot of ill will. So how should we work with this precept? not to speak of others' faults, but to speak out of loving kindness. How should we work with this precept with respect to racism and anti-racism when we see so much around us that's wrong and harmful? How can, how can this precept help us in our efforts to um, reduce or eliminate the harm caused by, by racism? And one thought would be to ask ourselves, so what's our intention uh, when we speak of the faults of others? I mean, how can we focus our intention on being helpful? Um, so how do, we, how do we speak effectively about injustice? Um, what about calling out people who do harm? What about harsh speech um, using, using our power verbally. Um, I'll tell a, a short story about last summer I was in a store with my daughter and, and um, this is a very frustrating situation and I, I found myself being shrill and insulting to the woman who was a store clerk and she was just following the store rules which were kind of stupid and inefficient and we were late and she was wasting our time and this really pushes my button so I was impatient and critical. And we walked back to our car and my daughter said, you can't treat black people that way. And that just stopped me in my tracks. And of course I shouldn't speak to any person that way. Um, and she was doing a hard job and she was following these rules that she had no control over. But I asked myself, did it matter that she was black? I mean, I think I might made it worse because I was just one more white person in a position of power. And I was so disrespectful. And I think I added to the load of society's injustice. So that's that's one thought. I don't know if I'm right about that. I've been thinking about it ever since. But what about actively practicing kind speech and providing encouragement and using our voices to raise people up? So um, I'll, I'll just quote Reb Anderson. I love his book on the precepts, and I've read it so many times um, since Tygen asked me to read it um, when I sewed my first Rakasu. He says, this precept is ultimately intended to grac graciously and thoroughly uproot uh, impulses from which, you know, perverted, he used speech, arises to develop the compassion and liberating potential of human speech. So we welcome all your comments on this precept. We have about 10 minutes for that, and Dylan will let us know when it's time to move on. I will add as Zoom host that since we're two screens of people, it might be best to use the raise hand function. Um, though if you do raise your anatomical hand, uh, we'll, we'll <laughs> quite have to look out for it.
Silence is fine. I see two guys' hands now. Good. Good morning. Um, so just for clarification, the precept we're looking at is, um, is not uh, speaking of the faults of others. That is correct. Not to speak of the faults of others, but to speak out of loving kindness. In this context, that's a really difficult precept because you also want to speak the truth about racism and what people are saying and to denounce uh, racist speech. And so you really have to be skillful about where you want to raise your voice and not, not to just criticize blindly, but to try and be really precise with, you know, your, your speech, if you're going to be denouncing um, harmful speech, which seems to be in, in this context, uh, like the opposite of that precept would be to cultivate helpful speech. So maybe speaking against racist speech is in that sense, helping to cultivate helpful speech. I see George's hand. Yes, thank you. Um, you know, the the scenario that took place in, in public, I think it it just uh, adds another layer of of uh, what could be. Uh, it just reminded me of one of of the book uh, "Between the World and Me" by Ta-Nehisi Coates, and I'm I'm sure. A lot of people have read this book, and, and if you haven't, it's 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 got a lot of that precision that I think uh, was just talked about. Um, and there's a scene where perhaps that precision failed the author uh, that took place in public. That um, I think uh, in public he was with the author was with his son, young son, and um, someone decided they had the power or the agency to. Uh, physically accost his son and you know I think it was a moment for him where he felt a lot of shame but perhaps righteousness that uh, he could take that time to speak out against what agency was there for that person to hurt his son Um, so I think those two those two scenarios kind of came together for me and and, um, what can happen in public it, it can be a little scary, but also a little bit righteous. Thanks. It's the Asian's hand. Thank you. I'm probably one of the people who speaks too much. And so I'm sorry to waste my turn on this first question. (laughs) You get one turn on each question. (laughs) Oh, okay. (laughs) Um, (laughs) You know, thinking about this precept from the practice of right speech, um, I think about the ways that calling anyone out actually can 
paradoxically exacerbate what you're trying to help because because when we call someone out we create a feeling in them of like no you know like like just a little bit of defense and and the same happens for us too when someone else calls us out so it's hard to even talk about how to not speak of the faults of others um, in such a, because, because by doing that, we're, we're saying, you know, don't, don't not, don't speak of the faults of others. So, so we don't, we have to not even start that dichotomy. You know, it starts with what, I think it really starts with what can we do instead? Um, I work at a very, in a very diverse setting. I work at the, uh, the most diverse four-year public university in the Midwest. And, and so I have the opportunity all the time to um, interact with people from many different cultures, many different races, many different ethnic backgrounds. And something that I've noticed about people who are different from me, maybe from a different culture than me, is that they can be very humble, very humble and very inclusive. And I think that that is a great quality to emulate. I find that for me as a European American, um, I tend to put myself first and not everyone does that, you know? So I, it's, it's worth observing um, and, and learning from, from people who are different from us that there are different and maybe more skillful ways to react to a situation than by directly throwing ourselves at it and saying, this is a problem. You know, maybe there is another way that we can work with a situation besides just directly calling it out. That is that is one way, but it's only one way. Again, uh, just one point about this precept. It doesn't mean we should not speak about harmful situations or situations of harm or whether it's in conduct or speech is but i think it has to do with how do we see that is it about the conduct is it about the speech or do we name call and and personalize it that person is a whatever uh so i i I think we do need to speak truth as uh jokai was indicating about Things, uh, situations of harm. Um, that's part of speaking truth, not lying. But um, not to think of it as this person is a whatever, but just to talk about the actual event of some harmful conduct or speech. I like what someone suggested, or maybe one or more than one person suggested, to to look at how others use language effectively for the, you know, to actually reduce harm and to learn from them. Um, Speaking is, is listening is part of speaking as well. It takes listening to make speaking work. I see Chris's hand raised and then Paul. Um, Going off of the idea of, we're not name-calling. There's also, Gillen used the idea of we're trying to put down, we're trying to get people to put down the weapons uh, in terms of 
using racial slurs. I've been in a situation where someone very close to me has used racial slur and defend and attempted to defend themselves on the concept of it being in a referential context. The idea I feel like is there's the weapon of the word and then there's the weapon of saying someone can't use the word that someone feels like they have to grab it back. And I feel like part of the speech we're trying to cultivate is the remo- the removal of speech versus not speech. You um I have to admit that being in the proximity of that situation and also putting up a language barrier of paralysis around my own perspective on race. Through speech, we're trying to eliminate the barrier between speech and action because those two realms aren't separate. So... David Ray, I think you were muted. I think Paul was... Oh, I was calling on Paul. I, I'm sorry, I was muted. Paul, I, I think I saw your hand and then Eve's hand is raised. Thank you, Tegan. <clears throat> um, yes. Suzuki uh, Roshi, my teaching, the teaching that I received from Suzuki Roshi about the precepts was not to make two because he didn't get into the details back in the early days. It was He kept it very simple. And, and I know my experience of living in other living in other cultures and and relating to other <clears throat> to other ethnic and racial groups in this cult, in this culture <clears throat> and to animals and trees and various things that sentient beings are extremely sensitive and they pick up on your feelings whether they're verbal or they're verbalized or not so if you feel if you feel when you beat somebody you no know, whether it's a, a tree or a person or, or somebody, whether it's somebody of your of your own ethnic background whose political views you don't agree with or somebody from, an, from another ethnic background, if you meet them on a basis of uh, welcoming equal equality and non-judgment, they will pick up on that. They will feel that. And, they will, and, they, and then you can say anything to them. Whatever you say is okay. Once you've established that feeling that you're not, you're not putting them in a box that's below you or above you or different from you. Once you have that rapport, you can say anything. I don't think it's what we say; it's how we feel about the empathy we feel with the other person. So I think there's 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 action and there's speech, but there's also whatever you want to call that feeling, empathy, the the emotional content, the the nonverbal content. <clears throat> I think is is the key to 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 action and and speech. <clears throat> so I think that might be a good place for us to to move on. We just hit fifteen minutes. You're up, Dylan. <laughs> move on for now. I mean, obviously, we could go on for for yeah. yeah. <laughs> 
so uh, the first one I'm going to talk about is not to lie, but to be truthful. Uh, and just to, you know, as a, as a framework, I'm, I'm speaking from a white, masculine, queer perspective. So, you know, what I have to say might be most useful to uh, other white folks. And uh, through this discussion, I'm going to be, you know, uh, referencing some of Kendi, Ibram X. Kendi, uh, some of Hongja, some of Sarah Valentine's uh, uh, new memoir. And uh, I also brought up Angela Davis earlier, but mostly I'm just going to be speaking from my own heart mind. But I'm not an expert in anti-racism. I've made mistakes about race that have hurt people. And I'm just determined to you know, make my life useful and try to figure it out as much as I can. So I'll start with um, when we talk about not to lie, but to be truthful. I'll start with a couple of uh, quotes from Ibram X. Kendi's How to Be an Anti-Racist. And this is the, the work that we're studying in the uh, Friday morning group. So he says, racist ideas have defined our society since its beginning and can feel so natural and obvious as to be banal, but anti-racist ideas remain difficult to comprehend in part because they go against the flow of this country's history. To be an anti-racist is a radical choice in the face of this history requiring a radical reorientation of our consciousness. Like fighting an addiction, being an anti-racist requires persistent self-awareness, constant self-criticism, and regular self-examination. And he says in a different part of the book, the good news is that racist and anti-racist are not fixed identities. We can be racist one minute and anti-racist the next. What we say about race, what we do about race, uh, in each moment determines what, not who we are. So that's where I want to start is uh, just letting go of this desire to affix a label to ourselves or others. Um, I think there's this temptation in the United States of, uh, especially amongst white folks, the bad racists are over there. And I'm not one of them. And the good white people are over here and I'm one of them. You know, isn't that great? So, I mean, the reality is that the foundations of the United States are racist. Um, And we all live here and we're all affected by that. So how has that reality affected your heart, your mind? your actions in the, in the past. How does that reality affect you right now? How does that reality affect what you're going to do in the future? You know, it's, it's not about being perfect. It's, it's not about being politically correct or being one of the good white people. You know, these are our neighbors. These are our friends. This is our minds. So it's about being honest with yourself, first and foremost, I think, so that you can be ready to be proactive. Uh, and I'll, I'll put forth that I, I in, in my work, in my self-work, I think about it as two basic aspects to this, that there is a reflective aspect and a proactive aspect. And they're interdependent with each other, but it's reflective and proactive. So 
the, the reflective aspect is basically the question, how is racism living in me? How has it lived in me? How is it presently living in me? Uh, and I'll uh, bring in Hongzhi here because he's my favorite. It says in one of his verses, people with the original face should enact and fully investigate the field without neglecting a single fragment. And Hongzhi also says, immediately tug and pull back the ox's nose. Of course, his horns are imposing and he stomps around like a beast, yet he never damages people's sprouts or grain. So a big part of this precept of not to lie, but to be truthful is about having the courage to face yourself and who you are, where you come from and where you live is part of who you are, you know? So there's that persistent reflective aspect that both Hongzhi and Kendi are talking about. And then there's the proactive aspect. And that's the, that's the aspect of what am I going to do about it? Uh, what, what is that? And each of us has a different answer for that. Um, and just from, from the life experience that I've had, of, you know, from growing up in the suburbs in Massachusetts to uh, living here in Chicago for about the past decade, uh, I believe that white folks in particular have to get over their fear of looking at racism directly. And it's time to be proactive. You know, the, the future of our society in, la in a large part depends on white people deciding to be proactive in America. Um, it's a, and I think it's, there, you know, it's about being reflective about your proactivity and being proactive about being reflective. So how they're interdependent. <laughs> um, so I'm going to then share just two really brief stories. Um, so about a year ago, I was skateboarding on Damon Avenue and my, my, one of my skate wheels fell into a hole in the street and I fell really, really hard. And, and, uh, and I thought I broke my arm. It ended up that I only fractured it, but it was, it was a very dramatic spill that um, that was very painful and I thought obviously painful. And the thing that I found most striking when this happened was that nobody helped me. Like there were people around me and people saw this happening and nobody did anything. You know, like I, I just, you know, face planted into the pavement and I just kind of had to pick myself up and then I called Wade trying to figure out whether I should go to the hospital or not. And, uh, and so there's also another story that I think is similar to this. And this is, I'm taking this from an Instagram profile called opera is racist. And it's a, it's a collection of anonymous, uh, uh, testimonies from people of color that are, um, in the opera world. Uh, and so this story is, uh, this, this person says, I'm an autistic Brown trans man. Last year, I sung Cherubino. I was close friends with a guy singing Basilio, who is a queer black man. Backstage, just before a rehearsal started, the woman playing Susanna loudly said something along the lines of, isn't it cute how all the, insert racial slur here, just stick together? She proceeded to say things like this several more times, using offensive language centered around our races and orientations. 
It was humiliating and hurtful, and no one did anything. So unfortunately, I don't want to say unfortunately, this is kind of our natural setting, you know, so I don't want us to be too hard on ourselves about this. You know, we kind of wait for someone else to do something. But I want to advocate for us not to be dwelling in being disappointed in ourselves about this, but um, be honest by being reflective. And when you have the aspiration to be proactive, to be honest to that aspiration. So I'll, I'll open it up to conversation. I'll say a thing in response to that. Thank you, Dylan. Um, one of the things that I've really gotten out of our uh, Friday morning meetings is a kind of, wow, I don't know how to say this. Um, well, well, there's there's so much discomfort for uh, most white people, I'm speaking for myself, in starting to talk about racism, even starting to say phrases like white supremacy um, and, and how to deal with it. And um, the, the, the Friday morning meetings have, have helped me, I don't know, sort of make myself at home with the fact that there are all these structures and traditions that I love and that I'm bound up with. Opera is one of them. Classic literature is another of them. I was talking about Jungian psychology the other day with, with, with a classicist who is a person of color. And all those things are bound up with racism. They are. They're bound up with white supremacy. And that doesn't mean I want to throw them overboard. And it doesn't mean that, that, it, that the fact that, that the mere fact of, of my loving those things makes, makes me a racist. And that, that whole thing of am I a racist or not? I like Kendi's um, um, way of talking about racist, racist and anti-racist as, as, um, as, as fluid, um, uh, as fluid identities. So uh, um, it's just the fact that we talk about it on, on a regular basis is extremely helpful to, to just to get more accustomed to saying the, saying the phrases and thinking about it and sort of uh, it's, it's like, you know, like, like if somebody's agoraphobic, you know, they, they, they have to work their way up to going to the mall. It's kind of like that, just dipping a toe in it. No, thank you. I, I know, Eve, that your hand was, was up from, from the last time. Yeah, no. I, I mean, one of you know the points of like complexity for me is how um, uh, the the tension between and you know, and I've participated in um, you know a lot of discussions about this the past year in various contexts, but and there's been a tension between um, the white black um, racist issue. And Black Lives Matter, which I think all of us do want to acknowledge that there have been things that are particularly intransigent um, about anti-Black racism in the U.S. Um, because of the history, um, because of the sort of long-standing idea that one drop of Black blood makes you Black, quote-unquote, that... Um, 
you know, people in the Latinx community, for instance, um, sometimes have had a choice about um, passing. Um, and, you know, the same if you're, you know, lighter skinned African American. But, um, but, but there's just been this, you know, intransigence about being identified as black and that's been lumped into this, this whole very painful history that's, that's really, um, you know, something that, 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 you know, like you said, it's at the roots of, of our own history as a community and that we have to deal with. But, you know, on the other hand, there is this, um, the reality that we live in a multi-racial, multi-ethnic society where there are a lot of different uh, shades and experiences and the white experience is not monolithic. Um, as a Jew, um, I, when you were talking about slurs, um, one of my former bosses used an ethnic slur against Jews totally unconsciously. He was just repeating something I think that he'd grown up with. Um, and, and I remember calling him out on it and what that, that felt like. Um, I've been in situations where because of, my coloring I in Chicago, I've had, you know, quite a few occasions when people actually said to me, what are you anyway? Because the thing about Chicago is sometimes people can't talk to you until they put you in a category. And a lot of times people weren't sure what category to put me in. Um, and, and I've also had experiences where um, I've been treated differently by police, depending on how I was dressed and, you know, what kind of car I was driving. So I know that these judgments that put people into categories are complex and they shift. Um, and I think part of being reflective is to, uh, you, know, you know, to think about our own experiences with that and, you know, and how it's played out. But, um, and at this point, I think I identify as off-white. Um, but, um and so, yeah, anyway, I just wanted to sort of put that out there that there's this this tension between acknowledging um, the specific history of uh, of um, anti-black racism in the U.S. and and trying to figure out where we're at now um, and where we could go and what it would look like um, to live in a genuinely democratic, multi-ethnic, multi-racial society. see Dave Newberry's hand raised. Hey, uh, first time here. Uh, this is I'm, I'm Dave and this is Jackie. Uh, and I, I apologize. I think that maybe I'm a little bit uh, at a disadvantage here. Uh, I'm, I'm a little bit more curious to if someone could help me understand maybe like what are the precepts? Uh, it sounds like, you know, there's four of them here, but uh, just because I don't know what they are, that that might help me maybe frame up the conversation a little bit better. Megan, you'd be the best person to do that. Uh, yes, uh, thank you and, and welcome. Um, I, I think the conversation today is focused on uh, our all of our struggle with the racism in our society. The precepts, uh, there are 16 precepts in Soto Zen. 
I'm going to be speaking next Sunday and I'll talk about them some uh, next Sunday. So there's a, so we have a a lot of people here who have been uh, involved in this group or in Buddhism for a long time. And a lot of people here who are new. So uh, bear with us and I'll I'll be talking about this next Sunday and give you a fuller uh, response then. And there are a number of versions of the precepts that the version that we're using is Norman Fisher's version, uh, which you can Google or we can put it in the chat or something um, that emphasize um, both sides or both aspects of the precepts. So uh, not to lie, but to be truthful, uh, etc. But thank you for that question. Uh, somehow I thought we were going to introduce the precepts at the beginning, but um, we, we apparently got ahead of ourselves. So that's a very helpful question. And, and welcome to both of you. Uh, we have a few more minutes for this part of the discussion, but Tygen, I wonder um, if this might be a time that you might... Um, tell us uh, a number of speakers coming up in the near future that will um, also be opportunities for some of this discussion to continue. Yes. Thank you. Uh, So this is not, this is just, we're not going to solve this today. Right. Obviously. (laughs) Uh, So, uh, but speaking about being proactive, I I saw Phyllis a, a while ago and I'm not sure, uh, where she is now, but I think she's here somewhere. Anyway, uh, uh, speaking of being proactive, uh, several weeks ago, and we've been doing this Friday morning uh, discussion for a while now, and thank you so much, Dylan, but Phyllis said, well, maybe we should have Black uh, people giving Dharma talks at Ancient Dragons Endgame. And we've had, uh, well, we had a, a, a representative from Black Lives Matter speaking at it, not informally at a, at, a, at a meeting here some years ago. At any rate, um, I just want to announce, and, and I'll have regular other regular announcements, uh, but uh, January 24th, all of this is in the website schedule. January 24th, Sarah Valentine, who uh, some of you remember when she was living in Chicago and teaching teaching uh, literature at Northwestern, she, was, she participated in Ancient Dragon, but um, she is going to be speaking January 24th about her book, When I Was White. She grew up in an affluent uh, uh, white suburb and discovered at age 27 that her father was black. So uh, just the adjustment that she has had to go through in terms of identity uh, is powerful. Uh, I'm just going to mention these. These are all on the website. February 21st, Risha Wade, who also was a participant at Ancient Dragon, uh, when she lived in Chicago, is go speaking. She's now living in Los Angeles and is a chaplain. And she has a new book coming out that I uh, had the, opp- the opportunity of reading. It's really excellent. Grieving While Black, an anti-racist take on oppression and sorrow. She shares uh, a whole lot of knowledge and, and wisdom about uh, chaplaincy, as well as being black and being a black woman, um, being a black lesbian woman. Anyway, she's... Uh, uh, really, it's a powerful book, and she'll be speaking February 21st. March 14th, Pamela Ayo Yatunde, who is a college professor, also a practitioner, 
she spoke at the last Sutras and Buddhist Association uh, conference. Uh, will be here. She's written a number of books. The most recent, she co-edited a book called Black and Buddhist, What Buddhism Can Teach About uh, Resilience, Transformation, and Freedom. Uh, and she also has a book on midwifing, a woman's a womanist approach to pastoral counseling. So she'll be, uh, she's a very good speaker. She'll be here March 14th and March 28th, Zenju Earthland Manuel, who is a uh, teacher in San Francisco Zen Center lineage, uh, was a, a is a successor to Blanche Hartman, my Shuso teacher. Will be here of her amongst her books. The one that's coming out like in a week or so is called The Deepest Peace. Um, uh, hold on, I have. Yeah, the the deepest peace, comp- contemplations from a season of stillness. She also, amongst her other books, is The Way of Tenderness, Awakening Through Race, Sexuality, and Gender. So Zanji will be here in March also. So uh, thank you to, to Phyllis for in, in, uh, in, encouraging me to, <laughs> to uh, try to be proactive about this. And so we, this discussion will be continuing. So thank you, for Gershon, for calling on. And one of the things I miss most about not having our space on Irving Park Avenue is not having our library to share some of these um, really important things that um, that we all, you know, would like to read. I, I don't know a solution for that. I've been thinking long and hard about how we could share books in these COVID times, but I don't, I don't know. But we can at least share recommendations for books and, and use libraries. Um, and maybe support authors by buying books when we can afford them. I think it's time to move on to the next precept. We might have time for one more comment on this, if anybody is eager. Just to say, just excuse me, just to say that Asian kindly posted the 16 Bodhisattva precepts that we use in the chat box. So um, Dave Newberry, you can look, look in the chat box to, to see those. So um, the next precepts for our discussion is, is usually the one that's the first one that, that we say of the uh, not to kill, but to nurture life. And uh, I mean, it might seem obvious how this precept applies in our really violent society. Uh, We hear about these things daily, uh, killings and capital punishment and mass incarceration and, and so forth. And, and uh, someone, someone mentioned on uh, Friday in our Friday morning discussion, how, how numb we, or, or at least our sense of outrage somehow gets numbed by this constant exposure to these uh, horrific um uh, happenings. Um, I, I wonder if we can focus today's discussion. Um, I mean, w- without denying or ignoring the, those facts, but on on what specifically we personally or our sangha can do uh, to nurture life, um, to refrain from from harming living beings. And um, you know, I think we're going to have to stretch our 
stretch our minds and our hearts as we as we think about uh, think about this. Um, I I I don't I don't usually like lists of practical suggestions. I've I've been an environmental professional for many decades. And I, I hate these lists when people say, how can you be a good environmentalist, you know, recycle your beer bottles or whatever. It's like, that's not going to really change the world. It's not a bad thing. So I, I don't, I don't really want to get into that, except I do think we need to look at our lives and see what are, what impact our personal choices are having. Um, so I guess we have to balance that from from being too glib or or um superficial to being really practical and personal and so one example i would give is is how we use our money i mean we our money makes a difference uh, our choices of how to be a consumer and now we can divest from financial institutions that take advantage of people and communities. It, it takes some work to do that, but but it's 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 doable, and I I think it's important. And educating ourselves about racial equity policies, um, I think, is our responsibility, and I think that's something we can help each other with. This is where working together, helping each other with being wiser um, might might be something we would consider. So uh, I've already talked a lot, so I'm going to now stand back and hear other thoughts. I see Rona's hand. Thank you. Um, uh, if we're talking about maybe helping each other, I did see this uh, article. I've, I'm from Israel, so I don't think you can see it because it's in Hebrew. But um, this article about uh, clothes, uh, the clothes we buy, um, that they are... Um, factories in India and all kinds of countries that have, um, um, the, the workers there are like almost like slaves, underpaid, work a lot of hours. So if we're talking about doing something good with our money, so I think that's one thing that we can do. And it's also, I think Laura will say it's, uh, ecological. To not buy new clothes, but maybe um, maybe secondhand or stuff like that. Um, also, I saw in the same article that um, a lot of clothes that we um, give give away, like give uh, to don't know the word um, donation, we give as donation. Um, we have so many at least here in Israel, that they send um, ships f- filled with clothes to Africa. 
and they just put it there. And the chemicals from the clothes, they, um, they sink in the ground so that there's more, um, people sick and dying from, from all that. So that's also like really, um, the same thing with clothes. Uh, so that's it just uh, to share that. Thank you. One of the wonderful things about Zoom is that we get to talk to people in Israel. So great to hear from you, Rona. Fushin. Thank you. Um, I read an article recently. Can everybody hear me? Yes. About um, uh, an approach to receiving gifts that is practiced among uh, First Nation peoples that when you receive the gift of whatever kind for which you have gratitude, you can offer something to someone, um, give, give, in return for the gift that you receive. And we, I, I mean, I know that I tend to, to feel like I'm taking a lot. Um, I receive, I feel like I receive so much. So I am attempting, when I'm aware and conscious of all that I am receiving, to somehow find smaller ways, small ways to to be active. And if we maybe focus more on giving and offering. I mean, sometimes, you know, what I have to give, it doesn't seem like anybody's really particularly interested in accepting, but that's not the point. The point is that the attitude is shifted from consuming and taking to offering and generosity. So that's one way I've attempted to begin to address supporting life rather than taking life. I see Paula's hand. Hello. Um, Very simply, I would suggest anything in each individual's life that provides comfort or has helped them 
find an easier way to navigate their life and sharing whatever that is with other people is a very simple way to um, not harm life and en encourage the positivity of life. You know, we all have our, our Zazen practice and I know we all like to share that with other people, but there are so many other things. Um, if you knit, if you like to read, teach people how to read. Um, if you're a runner, uh, start a running group. Um, yoga, become a yoga teacher. I mean, there's, there's so many ways to connect over so many different practices that life offer us. And it's a way for people of a lot of different backgrounds to find a commonality in doing something that's generally good for a human being. And I'm sure everybody has at least one thing in their life that they find gives them comfort. So I would encourage people just to work from there and work out. I see Phyllis's hand raised. Um, I think one of the maybe one of the most direct way to support life uh, for our African-American neighbors is to educate yourself about hunger, about hunger right here in our city um, and food desert, the phenomena of certain neighborhood overwhelmingly African-American neighborhood having no access to fresh produce, um, affordable uh, food and vegetable. And they're almost always um, relying on fast food and processed food. And yes, I know it uh, is all tangled up with property and the uh, bigger economic system. But there are ways for us to help with that particular issue directly. And I think that is one of the most direct way to support life. It is raised. David, I couldn't hear you. Did you say me? I did, Asian. yes. Okay. Um, thanks. So these are all wonderful suggestions, and I wanted to add one thinking from a different perspective. Um, we can all have a tendency to treat each other and the world as a collection of dead objects, to use the word of uh, words of Rev. Anderson. Um, and we, we see people and beings and things as doing what we want or not doing what we want, giving us what we want or not giving us what we want. And one way that we might change that a little bit to support life is to try to remember the life of the subjective life of every person and every being and everything that we encounter and to allow it to have its own life. Um, to remember that with 
you know, the person that we're that we're talking to, they have their own life and their own experiences that have shaped them and their own experience of, of us and our conversation. And to just allow that to inform us, to take a step back from um, continually put it, pushing ourselves towards, you know, what, what we want from them to, to, to respect that even, even if we are trying to help them change somehow, that we really have to do our best to try to understand them and the causes and conditions that have shaped them. Thank you, Asian. I think, I think it's time to move on. Uh, Dylan. Okay. So the last one for today uh, and the last one I picked is not to harbor anger or ill will, but to forgive. So first with this precept, there is the aspect that allows you to forgive yourself for being a person that lives in the United States. Uh, That's a reflective component that you'll probably be studying for your whole life. I'm not sure I'm not you, but that's, that's, I'm going to try to do that. Uh, And then secondly, there's the proactive aspect of what to do when anger arises in response to when racism arises in everyday life. And that's what I want to focus on for a little bit. Uh, So I'm not going to be prescribing any of these uh, uh, techniques as like an ultimate method. You know, these are just the skills that I'm working on that I've tried to employ in my life um, uh, living in Chicago. So um, this comes from a root of awareness of your physical self in a social and political context, or uh, in other words, as someone who lives in the United States. So just having an awareness of how your physical self operates and is seen uh, uh, in the United States. And then, you know, you can, you can bring the microscope down to in Chicago and then in your neighborhood in Chicago, you know. Uh, I'm going to quote Sarah Valentine's memoir. Uh, She's coming up as a, as a speaker. Uh, So this is on page 94 for anyone that wants to uh, buy the book. She says, it occurred to me since I felt inclined to mentally specify that I was black while doing these things before that I was simply not doing them in some neutral state, but as white. It was something that I'd never thought about. And it struck me with surprise and shame that my assumed whiteness, despite my persistent doubts, had been a condition of my existence. It also meant that if it also meant that if I felt this way, everyone else must too. White people were walking around being white without realizing it. Black people were walking around being black. And because of the country we live in, we're forced to be aware of it. In this country, minorities were not allowed to forget that they were flying kites, picking out groceries, driving their kids to school, sipping coffee, attending business meetings, and writing books 
while being whatever hyphenated identity they held. But white people were allowed to think that they were just doing these things as human beings. If you were to ask a white person if he was aware that he was being white while gardening or waiting for the bus, he would probably ask you what you meant by that. So um, with this root of awareness of your physical self and social in a social context and a socio-political context, this is our everyday life, you know? Uh, there's kind of three basic settings that I go by. There's uh, when, I'm, when I'm talking about potentially intervening in a, in, uh, in a practical way. So there's, for me, a marketplace setting, uh, an acquaintance setting, and then like a close friend. So these are, in my head, these are kind of the three, the three realms, basically. So first, in a marketplace setting, this is basically when I have no personal connection with anyone here. You know, this is me waiting in the line at the bank or in the grocery store or walking the street, whatever. Um, but when you, when, when you observe and you're aware and you identify that what is happening is, uh, is racist in some way or, or physically dangerous, you know, if somebody's being assaulted or, or I don't know what I'm, uh, it, it probably changes if it's physical, physical assault. But if somebody, if somebody is, is, if you're in the coffee shop and somebody's saying something racist publicly, you know, and everyone can hear it, that's what I'm talking about, you know? Um, so for me, I'm going at that, I'm, I'm approaching that situation as claiming the space that I'm in as an anti-racist space. That that's a proactive decision that I'm making in that moment. Uh, and so that includes me saying, you know, in, like this person is doing something racist publicly. So I'm in response, proactively claiming the space is anti-racist in front of everybody. So that can be something like saying, you know, sir, you're being disrespectful or sir, please leave her alone. Uh, ma'am, how are, why are you upset? How, how can I help? Are you okay? You know, so, so interrupting a little bit. Um, and it's important for me when, you know, when this, when, when, when this happens that I'm not doing this to make the hostile person admit that they're doing something wrong, you know, that that's not the point of this intervention. It's not, it's not for them to, it's not with the goal of them to say, oh my gosh, I didn't realize that I was being hurtful and offensive. I apologize, everybody. You know, it's it, there. There isn't a turn of the dime like that, and that's not what I'm expecting, and that's not what I'm, I'm aiming for. That's not the aspiration of my action there. Um, what I am doing is demonstrating to the person that's being threatened that their black life matters. You're demonstrating that, and you're demonstrating to the people around you that their black life matters. You know. Um, so it's not it's not about the person changing in the moment, you know, that's being hostile. Uh, and it's it'll probably be awkward and they'll probably will they will, you know, the person that's being hostile will defend that we're we're very prideful beings. They will, you know, say they weren't doing anything wrong and probably leave in a huff, you know. But that's not the point. You know, the point is that you're claiming the space is an anti-racist space. You are demonstrating that a black life matters publicly. So that's the first the first context. 
the second context is an acquaintance. So this is like a friend, but it's not someone you're like calling when you have a bad day. You know what I mean? Like, it's not like close friends. This is like someone that you know, you know, in your, in your with, you're walking around with. And uh, this is when like, you're having a conversation with this person and something just comes up and it just hits your ear in the wrong, in a, in a weird way, you know, where it, it, you can tell they didn't mean for it to be offensive, but it's hitting your ear as, as a problem, you know? Um, and, uh, and, you know, as we, we've, we've said earlier, the, the point is not to say like, oh, you're, you are a racist, you know, the, the, um, the point is, and from, from, from what I try to do is the goal is to walk through the thought process with your friend, uh, together through questions, you know? So my, my, my technique is not like, what you just said is really racist and like pointing a finger. Uh, my technique is, do you think it's possible actually that there's some underlying racism in what you said? So you're, you're opening up the, a, a, a box, you know, you're opening it up. You're not, you're not assuming that you know what they're thinking. You're leaving open, you know, that you don't know where exactly where that thought came from. And maybe you misinterpreted it. It's possible, but having a be a question, Hey, do you think it's possible that there's some, that there's like some underlying racism in that, you know, and then you kind of work that through together and, it, you know, and, and, and you might find out that they were coming from a perspective that you didn't know about, but you didn't assume that you knew, you know, hence the importance of it being a question. Um, and, and there probably, there may not be a really like tidy resolution to that conversation, but, but um, at least that, that the question will um, will encourage that kind of reflective process for yourself and for your friend. You know, it's it's the it's that um, proactivity about reflexivity. Uh, and then the last um, group being your close friends. So this is like you know your father or your mom or your best friend since high school, the person that you can call at midnight when. You know, you're going through something really tough, that kind of person. Uh, and you're having a conversation and something comes up that that uh, just hits your ear the wrong way. Um, I, I go by Thich Nhat Hanh's advice. And this is difficult for me um, because I try to, like, resolve everything quickly. But I like Thich Nhat Hanh's advice about this. He says... Um, and he wasn't speaking specifically about, you know, instances of racism, but I think it directly applies. Um, you know, you can you can raise that question in the moment, but wait a day, you know, like this is this is a deep relationship. This is a long term relationship that you have with this person. Give yourself a day to breathe. Uh, I'm, I'm talking to myself. So uh, I give I give myself a day <laughs> to breathe. And uh, consider uh, all the different aspects of what we were talking about, what, what happened and what my feelings are. Give myself a second to compose my thoughts and feelings. Take, you know, just settle down a little bit. Come from a place where I'm settled. And then, uh, and then start a conversation the next day about talking about what, 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 what bothered you the day before. Um, when you're calm and you're both sober. You know, uh, human beings have a tendency to like 
wait until, you know, we're drunk to kind of like talk about how I was hurt the other day. So when you're calm and sober, you gave it, a, you know, a couple of, when I gave it a couple more hours and we talk about it. Uh, the last thing I want to talk about is about police encounters with people of color. Um, we talk a lot about in our tradition about witnessing and the importance of witnessing. And that's what I want to bring in on this element. Uh, witnessing police encounters with people of color is, is an important uh, uh, response that white people can do uh, that, that makes a difference. Uh, so what I do is when, I've, when I'm in the city and I see this, when a black person is being pulled over in some way by, by an officer, uh, there's an encounter happening of some kind. Um, I'm close enough uh, for the police officer and the person that they're encountering to know that I'm there. I'm, I'm, I'm visible. I'm in the realm in some way. But I'm far away enough to be at a safe distance. So I'm not I'm not getting into the, the potential conflict or anything, but I'm I'm visible. I'm in the background, you know. Just being there is really help is is helpful. I think. Um, it, you, I'm in, in my mind, you know, I'm supporting the potential for justice there, uh, and the presence is perhaps even helping that police officer not do something that would haunt them for the rest of their lives, uh, and you're helping prevent harm potentially to the life of a person of color. Uh, and if possible, um, I try to have a camera on me and be ready to film. Uh, so those are just some practical parts about, uh, uh, about um, basic act action. Open it up. Yeah. Jokai. One thing that came to mind when we're speaking about the precept of not holding on to ill will was this idea of competition. And I think that it's one of the primary ways that racism can be enacted is uh, just this kind of constant competition that's very prevalent in American society. And as Zen practitioners, the question is, how do we kind of transmute that into something that's a little more positive and um, how do we see things not from a kind of uh, scarcity viewpoint that there's not enough and that we have to compete for resources and how do we move to saying we do have enough and I can you know support my neighbor who maybe uh, you know I don't really feel like doing but that's um a big, I think, step, at least for me personally, is saying, you know, how, how do I be, you know, the best that I can be and not necessarily like better than somebody else and not viewing it as a comparison, but rather um, being the best person that I can be and in that sense, letting go of ill will. Chris. 
Yokai, I just want to say that I feel like I really resonated with that point. Um, I think that there can be a feeling of there is a race to end racism. Or at least that we're running almost like we're trying to run to the, like, let's call the person out. Let's say that this is racist and shut it up and hopefully it'll go away. And it does end. Um, being in that very, uh, having that kind of conversations within like a very, within like my own very close knit family about racism. I think there has been a sentiment in those conversations that we've all tried to rush to the decision of saying, oh, well, we acknowledge this perspective. We acknowledge the other perspective. But did we actually talk about whether something, whether there is a resolution to a racist behavior? Um, <laughs> that and also when we're talking about competition, I, I want at least I, I do feel like this is reflective here, but I have the time to get out of this space. I have the time to dismantle the over there aspect of racism of saying you're the good white person, all bad racists are over there. The community needs are over there. That outreach needs to happen. Um, To bring up Phyllis's point again, um, having a little bit of experience with working in food pantries Taking that step in, ter- in terms of reaching out to a community that's not just your immediate and talking about how we have the interdependency of that close circle of family and friends to acquaintances to the market. All of those are interdependent. Even with, uh, even with quarantining, we're not all that separate and race hasn't race hat race, racial issues haven't gone away hunger certainly hasn't gone away domestic issues haven't gone away i feel like in order to i guess in order to not harbor ill will there can't be the container of here and that here is somehow limited to maybe this discussion space maybe to our homes so, again, thank you, Dylan. Thank you, Ocean. Thank you, Jokai, for bringing up that point. It's a blessing to be here. We're near the end of our time, but... Um, I feel as if we've gotten some important um, conversations started. I would invite everyone to join us on Friday mornings and to take the initiative to um, think of other ways we can um, we can continue both the conversation and and the action. Um, I, I'm going to make a request that 
whoever does these things put the echo that we started with on the website so that others can see it. I think it's quite beautiful and has guidance for all of us. Um, so I can't do that, but someone can. And uh, and I'll, I'll just repeat my uh, warmest wishes for a happy winter solstice to everyone. And with that, um, I think we'll proceed to the uh, to the chants. And um, first, I will um, meet everybody and then share the screen of the text. In a physical temple space, we would chant these in unison. Um, you'll be able to hear uh, Christopher and me chanting, but, um, but everyone else will be muted. And we chant the repentance verse three times, then the, then the Metta Sutta. And so the chant... All my ancient twisted karma from beginning of greed, hate, and delusion through these times, I now fully avow. All my ancient twisted karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion born through body, speech, and mind. I now fully avow all my ancient twisted karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion born through body, speech, and mind. I now fully avow. Metta Sutta. This is what should be accomplished by the one who is wise, who seeks the good and has obtained peace. Let one be strenuous, upright, and sincere without pride, easily contented and joyous. Let one not be submerged by the things of the world. Let one not take upon oneself the burden of riches. Let one's senses be controlled. Let one be wise but not puffed up. And let one not desire great possessions even for one's family. Let one do nothing that is mean or that the wise would reprove. May all beings be happy. May they be joyous and live in safety. All living beings, whether weak or strong, in high or middle or low realms of existence, small or great, visible or invisible, near or far, born or to be born, may all beings be happy. Let no one deceive another, nor despise any being in any state. Let none by anger or hatred wish harm to another, even as a mother at the risk of her life watches over and protects her only child, so with a boundless mind should one cherish all living things, suffusing love over the entire world, above, below, and all around without limit. So let one cultivate an infinite goodwill toward the whole world, standing or walking, sitting or lying down, during all one's waking hours, let one practice the way with gratitude, not holding to fixed views, endowed with insight, 
freed from sense appetites. One who achieves the way will be freed from the duality of birth and death. <clears throat> May all awakened beings extend with true compassion their luminous mirror wisdom. With full awareness we have chanted the Metta Sutta. We dedicate this merit to... Our original ancestor in India, great teacher Shakyamuni Buddha, our first woman ancestor, great teacher Mahaprajapati, our first ancestor in China, great teacher Bodhidharma, our first ancestor in Japan, great teacher Eihei Dogen, our first ancestor in America, great teacher Shogaku Shunryu, the perfect wisdom Bodhisattva Manjushri, and to the fulfillment of practice of all members of all Sanghas, gratefully we offer this virtue to all beings, all Buddhas throughout space and time, all honored ones, bodhisattvas, mahasattvas, wisdom beyond wisdom, mahaprajna paranitam.